Our scripture reading this morning is uh, from John, 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write these things so that our joy may be complete. Father, we uh, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to be here this, uh, this morning and to worship you, uh, to be able to sing, uh, to be able to share uh, time connecting with one another, uh, to be able to hear uh, your word read and hear it explained and to be able to have uh, the Lord's Supper together. Um, Lord, we, we ask your blessing on this time. We ask your blessing on on uh, on Logan and on Melissa and Ruby and Ambrose and Jubilee and Glory as they are on sabbatical right now. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the faithful work that they have done uh, here, um, not just with this congregation, but in the city for a long time. Uh, And we are grateful that they have the opportunity to have the season of rest. Lord, would you please Uh, allow this to be restful. Would you please uh, restore them physically, emotionally, spiritually, that they can come back uh, ready for a new season of ministry and life here with with this congregation and in this city, uh, serving you and serving your kingdom. Uh, Lord, in the midst of that, we pray for this congregation and for the, the folks who are uh, stepping into new roles uh, to help lead. Lord, we thank you for, for people who are willing to sacrifice of their time uh, and of their talents uh, in order to help serve your church. Um, Lord, we acknowledge that, uh, that even this, what we're doing right now, there's a lot of people who've put a lot of time to make something uh, like a worship service go off well. So we, we thank you, Lord, for for the way that you've gifted your people to be able to do even this. Um, Lord, I pray now for our time here in your word uh, as I I share, as I preach, that you would please allow the words that I speak to be honoring to you, glorifying to you, uh, and that they would um, uh, point ultimately to Jesus. Uh, We pray this in his name. Amen. Do we do the Lord's Prayer now? Is this your custom here? All right, so let's do the Lord's Prayer. Ah, there, there, the slide. All right, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, so let's jump in the sermon. Uh, In uh, 1780, Abigail Adams, some of you might know her name, uh, she was the wife of uh, the guy that would end up becoming our second president and the mom of the person who would end up becoming our sixth president. Well, when our sixth president was still 13 years old, 
he had traveled with his dad as an ambassador for the 13 colonies to Europe. And his mom, Abigail, sent him a letter uh, because she was concerned about something. She says in this letter to 13-year-old John Quincy Adams, I cannot fulfill the whole of my duty towards you if I close this letter without reminding you of a failing which calls for strict attention and watchful care to correct. You must curb that impetuous temper of yours. And then this mom ever so lovingly closes her letter by saying, if you indulge yourself in the practice of any foible or vice in youth, it will gain strength within your years and become your conqueror. So here is this mom writing a letter to her son who's on the other side of the ocean and she closes the letter by saying, you gotta take control of your temper, right? She, she sees this issue and she says, if you don't take care of this problem now, it's only gonna get worse as time goes on. John, the author of this letter that we're beginning to study, this new series in the book of 1 John, uh, John is writing a letter. Now, John is one of the apostles. John is one of the guys that was really close to Jesus. He's the author of the Gospel of John. He's the author of the book of Revelation. We believe that he's the author of the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John is writing a letter as a pastor to a church. He's writing a letter as an apostle to the church throughout the ages. And because of our belief of how God works through the human authors of the Bible, we could even say that God is writing a letter to his people and in a very similar way, like Abigail was warning John of danger, don't let your temper overtake you, that John is writing us a letter, that God is writing us a letter of another danger. Don't let false teaching overtake you. That's what the book of 1 John is all about. 1 John is, is written so that uh, we all can be aware of some false teaching that was beginning to seep its way into the life of the church and John is really concerned that that false teaching doesn't grab a hold. Now, there is a, there's a principle, there's a, a maxim, a rule, if you will, of public speaking, of public oration, of letters, letter writing, and it is this. Your audience, audience wants to know, why should I listen to you? Uh, and I would imagine that probably this morning that that question kind of cuts in two ways. Probably some of you are wondering, why should you listen to me? Who is this guy who just showed up here uh, and is going to be preaching for us? And then also that question, uh, we could ask that question of John. So let's, let's answer both of those questions, shall we? So I am, my name's Omar. I'm one of the pastors uh, in the CTK Network. So my job right now is that I work with our church planting apprentices. Those are the guys that we are training up uh, to be pastors and church planters. I do leadership development. I also work with seminary students, doing recruiting and leadership development with seminary students. I've been doing this for two and a half years, and my family worships in Dorchester. I think I've been here a couple of times with you guys in the two and a half years that I've lived in Boston. Before that, I was a pastor of a church in West Palm Beach, Florida for about seven years. And before that, I was on the staff of a church in Miami, Florida, which is where I grew up uh, for five years. And in that time, I've, I've seen a lot of stuff. And so when Logan called me and said, hey, would you mind uh, taking the summer and coming over here and preaching for us and helping Patrick with some of the pastoral care? I was happy to be able to say yes. 
uh, because I feel like I, it, it would be, it was giving me the opportunity to do something that I don't get to do very often, which is preach regularly and be able to, to do pastoral care. So I am by no means trying to fill Logan's shoes. I can't do that, but I hope over the course of June and July that I can serve you all well. Uh, so that's a little bit of who I am. Now, more importantly, <laughs> who is John? Uh, why do we need to listen to John? What does John have to say? And what we're going to see as we jump into this first part of the letter is that John, we, want, we need to listen to John. And John is telling us that we need to listen to him because he's an eyewitness. He's an eyewitness of the things that have happened. So this is the big idea that we're going to look at this morning. John maintains that the reason we should listen to him is because he's an eyewitness of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And that the message he's sharing is the way that we can have fellowship. The message that he's sharing is the way that we can have fellowship. So we're going to do three things this morning. First of all, we're going to look at, uh, at his role as a witness. So he says that which we've seen, that which we have heard, that which we have heard, seen, that's which we've seen, that which we've looked upon, and we have touched. He uses those four words to describe his role as a witness. We're going to look, first of all, as a role of witness. Secondly, we're going to see uh, his uh, testimony. He says that's what he's going to proclaim, that which he proclaims. And then finally, that which he wants, right? He wants fellowship. So we're going to look at uh, John's role as a witness, John's role in proclaiming, and John's desire for us to have fellowship. So uh, how many of you podcast listeners? You know podcasts? All right. I figured I was going to have a good shot at that. How many of you have heard of the new podcast called White Lies? All right, so this is a really awesome podcast. So the, the, the premise of the podcast, I've only listened to one and a half episodes, so maybe it takes a turn south, but so far it's really good. The premise of the podcast is that at the time of, if you, if you remember your history, American history, right, uh, during the Civil Rights Movement, uh, there is the, the march across the bridge in Selma, Alabama in the 65, right? And so if you, if you know your American history, you know that the police come in, they spray tear gas, and it's, 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 a, it's a mess what the police do to the people who are marching. Right after that event, Martin Luther King Jr. calls for, I believe the phrase he used was white ministers of conscience to come to Selma and support the civil rights movement. Uh, to come and be, and be a supportive voice in what happens. Well, a pastor from Roxbury here responds, a white Unitarian Universalist pastor who at the time was serving as a, uh, doing housing, uh, desegregation of housing, if I remember correctly. And at the time, his family was one of the few uh, white families living in Roxbury. This is in the mid-60s. So he responds to the call to go to Selma, and a few days later, he's dead. And to this day, the crime has not been solved. Uh, now, I bring that up because as I'm listening to this podcast, the thing that really has gripped me is that you can hear the voices of the people who were there. Their eyewitness testimony of what transpired makes the, the narrative of this podcast so much more gripping because they were there. And the guy that held him, the, uh, James Reeb is the minister who, who died. The man who was with him, held him as he was dying, is speaking in this podcast. It's powerful. 
eyewitness testimony is powerful testimony because we, we get the account as, as unfiltered as we can possibly get it. In fact, there's been a lot of study done, and there's, a, there's a one particular book. It's, it's one of these books that's written for academic study of the New Testament. It's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And the whole premise of the 600-page volume is that the gospel accounts are eyewitness testimony. That this, this historian uh, and theologian by the name of Richard Bauckham has done extensive work to say we can have a great deal of certainty that the historical accounts that we have in the New Testament are actually not just made-up stories, but that they were eyewitnesses and that these eyewitnesses told their stories, they memorized these stories, they shared these stories, and that when you're reading the Gospels and they, and they make these little comments like, oh, so-and-so saw this, that that was a clue to say, oh, wait a minute, I can go find so-and-so and they can verify, yes, that is actually what happened. So John begins by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, with we, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the, way, the word of life. So notice what he says. I heard him. So this is John. And he's saying, I heard him. I heard what he said. I heard, I heard his teaching. I heard his teaching on all sorts of different things. I heard him when he was in those places. And, and John, we know, is one of the few apostles that got extra access. He was, there are certain times when Jesus would only take a few of the apostles with him to do something. And John was always one of those guys. That which we heard, that which we saw and, and looked upon. I saw him heal people. I saw him that night when he was walking on the water and we were all freaking out because we didn't know what on earth we were seeing. I heard him say, peace be still. And all of a sudden, the, the, the Sea of Galilee that was in this uproar was just absolutely calm. I saw that happen. That which we have touched with our hands. I touched him. You know, I knew him. I hugged him. I cared for him. That person is saying, look, you need to listen to what I'm saying because if you don't, Remember the Abigail Adams letter? There's this problem, and if you don't pay attention to this problem, it's going to have massive consequences for you as time goes on. And what John is saying is, listen to me, listen to my testimony, because if you don't, there's going to be consequences for you as you continue to move forward. Uh, so what's the implication of all of this? Uh, you probably haven't heard this before, because it's been said often, but it, it's something that bears repeating, right? Christianity, unlike other religions, hangs on historical facts. If you can disprove the humanity of Jesus, if you can disprove his crucifixion, if you can disprove his resurrection, if you can show categorically that these things historically did not happen, you've gutted Christianity of any truth whatsoever. And all of us should really, right now, we should be heading over to Dorchester to hang out and enjoy the Dorchester Day Parade. Right? But that is, that's what my son wants to be doing right now. Um, that's what we should be doing. Right? Because there will be no truth and no points in anything that we are doing right now. But John is saying, no, 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 these things are actually really true, and so we have to trust them. The, as I think about what this means for us today, it, it strikes me that, that it forces us to really question and really think about what we believe about Scripture, right? Because we're getting John's letter now, not just as this independent letter, but it's now a part of this book 
we call Scripture, we call the Holy Bible. And, and the implication for those of us who confess to be Christians is that this book, and this is what John is telling us, that this book, this letter, is supposed to be authoritative. This letter is actually supposed to guide the way that we think and the way that we live and the decisions that we make and the things that we believe are true or not true about Christian teaching. And, and so what that means for those of us who are Christians, those of us who would confess to be followers of Jesus Christ, I don't know about you, but there are plenty of places in the Bible where where Scripture says something, and I'm just like, "Ah, okay, I I don't want that to be true, right? I want this to be true over here. I want to be able to do it this way. But if Scripture is authoritative, if Scripture, if John is right, says, you know, this is what we need to, this is how we shape our lives, then we need to have our understanding or be willing to let Scripture challenge us when we question how authoritative it is. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? I, I know I'm not that Christians disagree on lots of things, right? So I'm not saying that our way is the only way to understand the Bible, right? I know that different people have different beliefs about baptism and about other things. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. But there are, there are things that the Bible that all Christians would hold to be true about who Jesus is, about uh, why Jesus had to come, uh, about the nature of sin, about... Uh, about Jesus' second coming, those things are not up for debate. How, we, how, we, how these things shape our lives, those things are not, not up for debate. So that's the first point, right? The first point is this is, John is saying, I'm an eyewitness, and therefore you need to pay attention to me. Uh, the second thing that we see is that he is not a witness who is in the witness protection program, right? He's not a witness that is, that is hiding and going off somewhere. He's actually a witness that is willing to get on the witness stand, if you will, and say, I'm here to tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Notice what he says. He says, verse 1, uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And then in verse 2, he goes off on this tangent about about the word of life. We're going to look at that verse 2 in a second. Verse 3 says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. The whole premise of this letter is that I want you to know the things that I saw, the things that I heard, the things that I was able to touch. I want you to know that this is all true so it can shape the way, you're, the way you live your life, and I want to proclaim it. I want to share it with you. And there are two, two aspects of what John is proclaiming. Uh, the two aspects of what John is proclaiming is, first of all, uh, he is proclaiming two things about Jesus. Uh, first of all, his incarnation, and I'll explain what that word means in a minute, and, uh, and Je- the fact that Jesus is life. These are the two things that are, that are just being woven into this introduction to this letter. So what does the word incarnation mean? Incarnation is a, is a theological term that we use to describe the fact that uh, Jesus who is God, was born, he, was, he, he uh, grew inside the belly, the womb of Mary, and was born a little baby boy, uh, and grew up to be a man. The, the incarnation we, is, teaches that God, in Jesus, God became man. Uh, and, and what we see in the passage is this, it says, that which was from the beginning. Now, if that sounds at all familiar uh, it's because that's how John begins the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So what John is doing is he's, uh, he's taking from his own work, and he's saying, all right, listen, this, this Jesus who was from the beginning, at the, at the beginning of creation, at the beginning of time, this Jesus has come, uh, and he is now with us. Paul talks about this as well. And it's interesting because Paul uses this word manifest, which is the word that John uses. To, when something is manifest, it means that, that the thing is, uh, our, we, we have seen it, uh, we have understood it, and we have appropriated it. It's something that we... Uh, that we understand its significance. So it's clear to the, to, the, to the senses, it's clear to the mind, and it's clear to our judgment. And Paul is saying in uh, 1 Timothy 3.16, says, Great is the mystery of faith. Christ was manifest in the flesh. So John is telling us, listen, and this is important, as, as 1 John continues, it'll become really important because we'll realize that part of what the false teachers are saying is that Jesus was not what these apostles are saying. Jesus wasn't that. Jesus is not both God and man. Don't listen to them. And John is saying, no, no, listen to me. I was with him. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. Listen to me. He really is both God and man. That's the first thing. The second thing that he's proclaiming is that Jesus is life. Now, it's really fascinating. He kind of does this in two ways. In verse 1, he calls Jesus the word of life. And then in verse 2, he calls Jesus eternal life. So life, think of this, life is both who Jesus is and what Jesus brings. Life is both who Jesus is and what Jesus brings. So it's who Jesus is. John, let's see here, John uh, 1.4. In him, that's talking about Jesus, in him was life. John 11.25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. So life is who Jesus is, but it's also what Jesus brings. It's also why Jesus came. For same verses, same two verses, John 1, 4. starts, in him was life, and then it continues, and the life was the light of men. I am life, and I've come to bring life. John eleven twenty five. Jesus says, this is, John eleven twenty five is when Jesus has, uh, has come, uh, Mary and Martha, their brother Lazarus, has died, and he's been in the tomb for three days. And Jesus comes, and, and those sisters are distraught, and I believe it's Mary that says, or Mary or Martha says, if you'd come, my brother wouldn't have died. And, and uh, he says, Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. And this is what he goes on to say. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is what John is proclaiming. He's saying, look, don't listen to the false teachers Listen to what I'm proclaiming to you. I have this authority. I'm an apostle. I saw it. I heard it. I touched it. Listen to what I'm telling you. Jesus is life. Now, if the first point challenge us, challenges us to, to consider how we view the Bible, how we view Scripture and the authority, I think this point uh, challenges us to consider our own the view, our view of our own reason. Because let's face it, God becoming man, eternal life, those are concepts that are hard to understand and easy to reject. 
but the reason that's the case is because we, we are growing up, I don't know you all very well, but my guess is I'm safe to say that, that most of all, most of us, if not all of us, have spent the majority of our adult life in, uh, in North America or in the West, in Western culture, right? Uh, and so there are certain assumptions that Western culture makes. Uh, if, uh, if some of you may know my, uh, my colleague, Matt Owens, and maybe you've even heard him use this illustration. I, I'm stealing this illustration from him. Uh, there's a, uh, a Gambian, uh, either Gambian or Ghanaian, I forget what country in Africa this scholar was from. He's, he's, he's gone now, he's dead now, uh, by the name of Laman Sana. And, um, and it, Matt, as he was sharing this illustration with me, really powerfully says that, that as Sana was a scholar, I believe he was at Yale, uh, one of the things that he constantly was combating was this, this um, two-faced assumption about African culture. So an African scholar would come to a Western country. They'd go to Oxford. They'd go to Cambridge. They'd go to Yale. They'd go to Princeton. They'd go to Harvard. And, and everybody would be like, oh, we love your culture. Yes, we want you to celebrate. We love your food. We love your dress. We love your customs. All of those things are great. All those objective, objective aspects of culture. Yes, we want to celebrate those. But the subjective elements of culture, right? Worldview, how we view reality, how we view a spiritual realm, how we view good and evil. Laman Sana says that if I send an African off to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, or Oxford, or Cambridge, they're going to come back European because they're going to be told, oh, everything has a scientific explanation. And they're going to hear, oh, we love multiculturalism. Wear your African dress, eat your African food, but we're going to destroy your Africanness because we're going to tell you that everything has a scientific explanation. But Christianity, he says, comes along and respects my Africanness. It lets me stay African because it says, yes, there are evil spirits, and good spirits, but Jesus has overcome the evil spirits, and through him you don't have to be afraid of them. In the end, uh, Sana says, Christianity is more open to cultural difference than any other religion because it renews, it doesn't replace my Africanness, he writes, it renews my Africanness. The challenge for us is that we have been taught to value reason, and that if we can't explain it, then therefore it's probably not true. And what John is saying is, look, there are certain things that we have to allow Scripture to challenge us. Not that they're unreasonable, but just because we can't explain it doesn't mean that they can be easily dismissed. And yeah, things like incarnation, that's a hard one. Eternal life, those are hard concepts to explain. Certainly explained in a 30-minute sermon when you're trying to get a lot of other stuff done. But what John is saying to us is that these things are true. And here's the, here's the operating assumption. If Jesus is life, then there's, assumption, there's an assumption being made that, that outside of Jesus is death. Paul talks about this really clear in Ephesians 2. He says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And he goes on to say that God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in sin, made us alive together with Christ. You see, this is what John and what Paul and what all of the authors of the New Testament are trying to convey. That, that we were made for a relationship with God and that that relationship has been broken, but that that relationship with God can be restored 
through faith in Jesus Christ. And so here are these false teachers, and they're trying to undermine all of this foundation that the apostles have laid. They're trying to, to, to wipe away their understanding of sin. They're trying to alter the, the Christian view of who Jesus is and what, why God has come. That's what they're trying to do. And John is saying, no, you can't let that happen. You need to listen to what I'm saying to you. I'm giving you my authoritative reason why, but ultimately saying is you need to trust in Jesus. You need to put your faith in him. All right, so our first point is that uh, John is a witness. Our second point is that John is proclaiming on the authority that he has as a witness, he's proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus who is both God and man. Jesus who comes in order to bring eternal life. Now, why is he so concerned to proclaim that? And the key word for us there is fellowship. Now, here's the problem with the word fellowship. Is that if you've grown up in the church at all, if you haven't had any connection to Christianity at all, the word fellowship has been gutted. Right? We use it as an adjective to describe rooms. Fellowship halls. And I don't know about you, but the churches that I've been in fellowship halls are not usually the nicest, cleanest rooms in the church building. All right? We use it to describe meals, fellowship meals. And usually a fellowship meal, where I grew up, right, a fellowship meal was everybody brought food. And you take your life into your hands when people are bringing food and things that are supposed to be warm are cold and things that are supposed to be cold are warm. Right? We use the word fellowship to describe what we do right before or right after a worship service, right? Where we're having our bagels and coffee and we're mingling. We say, well, that's fellowship time. And that's great, but let's face it, it's, it's a transition in or out of worship. And I'm not saying we don't use those words to those things. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with fellowship halls or, or fellowship time or fellowship meals. But when we use the word in that in those contexts and then we come here and John says I'm writing these things so that you might have fellowship we might be tempted to go okay what's the big deal why is fellowship something that I should be concerned about when I hear fellowship and I think of bad food in an ugly room and poor conversation you can tell that I'm jaded by the word fellowship (laughs) I'll share my stories later. Um, The word fellowship is actually a really powerful word. And it's a powerful word because it's speaking about the relationship that we have with God. And because of the relationship that we have with God, the relationship that Christians can have with one another. So you see, fellowship is something that, first of all, we have with God. Right? So when we put our faith in Jesus... When we trust in him, what ends up happening is we are, we are in this really mystical, mysterious kind of way. We're, we're united to Jesus. He is in us and we are in him. And so you have all of these benefits and blessings that come out of that, right? We are adopted. We are renewed. We, are, um, uh, we, we experience God's presence. All of these things are going on. And as these things are going on, we're experiencing benefit. And so here's the thing where Paul says in Ephesians 2 that that in Christ Jesus, we are being made one. So so not only are, are, you know, you and I, any of us who are are Christians, we're all being united to God in fellowship with God, right? But then what ends up happening is because we're being united in relationship to God, we actually end up having and sharing fellowship 
with one another. So you and I, even though we don't know each other well, or maybe at all, right, there's a fellowship that we share by virtue of the fact that we're in fellowship with Jesus Christ. We're in fellowship with God. So fellowship isn't just hanging out social time. It isn't a warm, fuzzy feeling. Fellowship is actually this really practical, really powerful experience of union that we have with God, and because we have it with God, union that we have with each other. And then fellowship isn't just about, it isn't just about um, a social aspect, it also has a missional aspect to it, right? We are partners, the way one person puts it is this, he's like, uh, partners with a common enterprise. God's people are called to work together, especially in the task of mission, to recognize one another's gifts and give support to one another's ministries. This is, this also goes against the dominant streams of our culture as, as North American, American Christians. Um, one of the themes, or one of the, the, not themes, but one of the images that Jesus uses in the New Testament is that God's, his people, his followers, are to be fishers of men. You remember that phrase? Right, he calls the apostles to follow him and says, come with me and I will make you fishers of men. And the idea there is that God's people are on mission with Jesus to go into the world and let other people know what Jesus has done. And he uses this imagery of fishing. Now I want you, even if you don't like fishing, right, I want you for a moment to picture yourself fishing right now. Are you doing it? Some of you are not doing it, but that's okay. If you picture yourself fishing, what do you have in your hand? What was that? A fishing pole, a fishing rod. I wonder, this would be an interesting cultural commentary. Depending on where you're from, if you said fishing pole or fishing rod, it'd be an interesting thing to figure out. Uh, so is that what Jesus had in mind? No. Right? Because there weren't fishing poles back then. Right? You had a fishing net. And in order for him to go to a bunch of fishermen and say, hey, I'm going to make you fishers of men, what they would have understood is that this was an enterprise that we do with other people, right? We go out on the boat, we cast out the net, the net gets full of fish. One person is not going to draw that out of the water, right? It takes every person, backbreaking work, working together to haul that net of fish into the boat. Now, there's nothing wrong with fishing poles, right? But, but you understand how culturally conditioned we are, even with the, some of the simple imagery of the New Testament, how culturally we conditioned we are not to see fellowship as important, but to think individually. And what John is calling us to is really powerful, really important. What John is saying, listen, this fellowship that we share because of what Jesus Christ has done, it's too valuable, it's too valuable for us to let anything erode it. And so therefore, I'm a witness. I'm telling you, I saw him, I heard him, I touched him. I'm telling you what he did. I'm telling you why he came. So that this fellowship that we share with one another won't be eroded. John is maintaining that the reason that we should listen to him is because he is an eyewitness. Uh, he is a witness to the word, witness to Jesus, uh, and that he is the witness that we need to listen to. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we ask that you would please help us as we begin this series in the book of John. Uh, Help us uh, to hear John's passionate plea for us, uh, to heed the words that he is going to write, the words that we're going to be considering and studying over the next couple of months, that we would be able with John to see Uh, to hear, to touch the truths uh, of your word, and that with John we might be able uh, to have fellowship. Not just, not just the social component, although certainly not less than that, but that we would also see this, Lord, as, as you uniting us to yourself, uniting us to one another, so that we can serve you uh, in this city and in the places where you call us to. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.